0: The book of Acts, chapter 16. And as you're turning there, we're going to read beginning in verse 19. Likely a familiar story to you, but these stories are familiar for a good reason. There's much to learn and weighty things contained here, good things. Um. I enjoy reading the book of Acts in, in large part because it feels like a, um, a, when I was a kid and if, if I would read, I love stories that had action and excitement and, and danger and thrills and that's one of the reasons I love the book of Acts still is because it's full of all of that. Um, And yet it's not fake. It's not a fairy tale. It's not about people with fake superpowers. They were divine powers that God granted in a moment for a purpose. And this story is just a wonderful one that um, I hope you'll find beneficial to, to listen to today. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. It says this, And when her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, And the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast with the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed And sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep. And seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for a light, and sprang in, and came trembling, and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. And I'll conclude our reading this morning. Please forgive any of the mistakes that I may have made in the reading today. The title of our message this morning, from this scripture and from the story of this man that we're going to try to focus on, is The End of Yourself. The End of Yourself. I think I might have shared this story once before, uh, but I feel compelled to share it again. When I was a freshman in college, I lived in a really dirty dorm, a really rough-looking place, probably, hopefully has been demolished by now, because it was probably mold-infested and and not fit for anybody to live but 19-year-old kids who don't know better. And uh, I had a room. I had a roommate who was not the most tidy either, uh, and he was a very smart. He was an engineering major. We attended high school and played basketball together. And um, over the course of that year that we lived together, I don't remember at what point, but we would periodically. <coughs> I had just before then been called to preach and began to apply myself to that calling. And occasionally we would talk about things about church. He was not averse to talking about that kind of stuff, and sometimes he would ask questions, and um, one day, I remember he just started to talk about God, not usually what he did or initiate a conversation about. Usually he was more question-oriented, but one day he began to talk about God and about dying and about eternity, and he, he was smart, and his reasoning that day went something like this. He said, you know, I'm going to school, and I want to finish school, and I want to get a good job, and eventually I want to have a wife, and I want to make a lot of money, And I want to enjoy my life. But, we're only here for such a short time. And if I had to live under a bridge my whole life with nothing, but I knew that I would go to heaven, and I would enjoy that place forever, then it's just common sense. And... it left me a little frozen that he said that because that's just not the way that he talked. And I told him, I said, you're right. And that night, we had bunk beds, and I climbed up on my, my top bunk and was just starting to nod off to sleep. And if you knew him, the people that did would not have believed this probably. But I started hearing somebody crying underneath me in the bunk and I let him cry for just a little bit he was trying to be very quiet and I finally said Ryan do you want to pray together he cleared up really fast and said no 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 I'm okay and went along his way that's the last conversation I remember ever having with him about God But I bring not just that story before you today, but that truth before you today. Uh, Jesus expressed that truth very succinctly when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? And the implied answer to that is it profits you absolutely nothing. Not a little bit. It profits you Nothing to gain the world and to lose your soul. This man that is hopefully going to be highlighted in this story, one of the things that I love about the Lord is that he wants everybody to be saved. Everybody he wants to be saved. Regardless of skin color, regardless of culture and nation and age, He wants everyone to be saved. Thus, he seeks everyone. He seeks people out. And he sought this man out. And I want to give you a little evidence to the fact that he really sought this man out. You see, before this, earlier in the chapter, Paul and Silas have been commissioned by a group of elders to go and to bring clarity about some confusion in the gospel. And so they're going to go, and this is their second Paul's second missionary journey, and he's going from town to town, and he's wanting to bring some clarity about a question involving salvation. And there comes a point where Paul and Silas, well-intentioned men, want to go to two different places. One, Asia Minor, and two, Bithynia. Just think of those as random states, like in the United States. They wanted to go there. And so their hearts are inclined to go, and the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. Now, I think in this chapter and what we read to you gives us the reason why the Holy Spirit forbid them from going to those places. It wasn't just necessarily that there might be some pitfalls in those places or they might come upon people that don't want to hear the gospel. I don't think necessarily that that was the reason. Rather, what God knew was that if they're in Bithynia or they're in Asia Minor, then there are going to be people in Philippi that need to hear the gospel, who have hearts that are desirous and yearning to know the truth, and that God could send these men at the appropriate time to speak the appropriate words that might lead to this man and his whole home's conversion." And so here, Paul and Silas, eager to go on this missionary journey, the Holy Spirit says, don't go there. And then Paul has what's famously called a vision, the Macedonian call. He has this vision of a man from Macedonia. So evidently, he could tell by the man's appearance where he was from. In this vision. And the man's message boils down to this. Come help us. Come help us. And so the narrator here in the book of Acts says they conclude very quickly that the Lord wanted them to go to Macedonia. And so they go. And the first person they run into is a woman. And the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart to the words that Paul and Silas spoke. I pray that God would do that with you this morning. But if you're lost today, listen, there is a necessity not only of your own volition to be attentive. There is a part where you have to desire and to be attentive to the word. But there is an additional supernatural need for the Holy Spirit to incline your entire being to desiring the word of God. Because it is naturally an offense to us. It's naturally a stumbling block to us because it communicates truths that we repel from. And so there is a need for the Holy Spirit with every person to open their hearts that they might receive the gospel. Because the Bible teaches us that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. Or in other words, you need to hear and receive the message of the gospel in order to have the ability to respond to the demands of the gospel. So, know this, that Satan and the demonic world are eager to close your hearts to the gospel. To shut down your mind from receiving the truth. And he is excellent at his job. Not meant to compliment him, but point out just a fact. He is excellent at shutting the minds, or as the writer in Second Corinthians says, blinding the minds so that they would not receive the word and believe. And so he goes around to and fro from this world, attempting to the best of his ability to close the hearts of people from receiving the gospel message. So this morning, there is a sense to which you have to desire and also pray, God, open my heart, and Lydia does, and she finds God. And as Paul and Silas go around and they continue to preach in this city of Philippi, there is a a strange thing that occurs. There is this woman going behind them and uh, announcing really loudly these things. And although in large part she's speaking the truth, it seems like it's having a detrimental effect on Paul and Silas spreading the gospel. And so Paul turns around and calls the demon out of her. Do I understand exactly what that means? No, I do not. <laughs> right? that's, a, that's a strange, unique occurrence that we find throughout the New Testament, that it does occur. And Paul does that. And immediately the man who had her evidently enslaved, or in the very least employed, realizing that she brought him a good sum of money for the work that she did, takes Paul and Silas, brings them before the court, But not only does he bring Paul and Silas before the court, but he brings a great crowd of people with him, evidently. And as they're standing before the court, people are calling out and yelling at them and not only pointing out what they had done in this case of this woman, but furthermore, they're making accusations that they teach customs, that they teach things that are uh, opposing the way of Roman customs, the way things that should be in that town. And so what do they do to Paul and Silas? Well, they strip them down. They take rods and they begin to beat them. Now, thankfully, Paul and Silas are more mature than what I am. Because here, Paul and Silas are prevented, their desires to go to one place, perhaps because of their own sight, they see a fertile ground in Bithynia and Asia Minor. And their desire is to go there. And the Holy Spirit forbids them and rather sends them to this place in Philippi. And there they are at Philippi with a whole group of people uh, rushing them and, and throwing things against them and beating them. And finally, they're thrown into prison. This is where the story gets really good. Paul and Silas don't seem discouraged in the least, actually, quite the opposite. They're not discouraged. Because the Bible says here, in verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. Now, I think the next thing that they do gives us a little insight to what their prayer might have sounded like. There's a lot of different forms of prayer, right? Perhaps you and I, getting thrown into a prison for our faith, might beseech God, deliver us. Perhaps we would say to God, God, why? I wanted to go to Bithynia. I wanted to go to Asia Minor and you sent me here and now look what's befallen us. This is my speculation. I don't think that's what Paul and Silas prayed. Because it says they prayed and they sang praises unto God. Step into the story for a second. Like, don't think about this as a story 2,000 years ago. Step into it yourself today. These men, bloodied and beaten, sang praises to God in prison. And I love the little phrase that adds on to that verse. And the prisoners heard them. You ever been to a hospital deathbed situation and the person in the bed is praising God and singing praises? And the nurses come in and out and the therapists come in and out and the doctors come in and out and there they are as the oppressed in some sense. There they are, the ones hurting, dying, but their spirit is very much alive in the Lord. I get into situations like that and my my eyes become faucets. And very often I I leave those places and I pray, God, when that is my lot, give me the same grace that you have given them. That even till the end, I would praise you. Evidently, The jailer took notice. Because then, something happens. There's an earthquake. Now, I don't know a lot about earthquakes. (coughs) Whatever I've overheard from my wife teaching our boys about geology is about the extent of what I know about earthquakes. Um, But in recognizing this verse in verse 26, it must have been a substantial one. I mean, imagine, I think towards the end of this book, it talks about a a hurricane-type thing. I think it's called a Euroclodon. I think Acts 27 or 28, there's a great wind that comes, and now imagine we just had a great wind come through Bowling Green, and it would be hard if I just say the word, well, there's a big wind, you would think, okay, you go outside, it's gusty, but we all know from the last week that a big wind can have quite a, a big effect on the world, right, It can have some things that you just wouldn't think about. Just saw photos this week of a kid on one of our boys' basketball teams, and they had a family member. Their house was completely destroyed. Tree just falls right in the middle of the house, completely destroys, and it has to be rebuilt. And so here we find that there's this earthquake, and it's so strong that as Paul and Silas are in jail, and this jailer has been given the responsibility to keep them, that he's making sure he's being very attentive and careful. He puts chains around their legs. He puts them into the inner prison to make sure there's no way these men are going to leave. And then there's this great earthquake that takes place. And suddenly, all the jail doors are torn open. So the jail is just completely in ruins. And the stocks must have ripped off of the walls. And these men have the opportunity to run free. Now, I want you to notice something about this. Moments before this earthquake, he is the oppressor, right? He's the one in charge. He's the one in control. He's the one on top. And then in a split second, everything about the man's life changes. And that, my friends, is the fragility of this life. Life is so fragile And young person, hear me today. If you've had moments in your life where up to this point, I'm I'm grateful if you've experienced moments of health and peace, that you have your parents, you have your siblings, you have your grandparents surrounding you, you go to the same school, and you have good friends, and you have freedom, and you have provision all for you, and life right now, perhaps up to this point, for the majority of young people, have been good and safe, but listen to me, in a moment, everything about your life can be turned upside down. We have people in this church that have experienced those moments, both young and and old, Where in one moment, everything will forever change. And it'll take you from feeling full of yourself, feeling confident about what the future holds, to everything in your life feeling wrecked, and perhaps even being wrecked. And you know what people often do in moments like what this man experiences, the same thing that this man goes. Right at first, notice the the dynamic here. He's in charge, and as long as the world is at peace, then he retains his confidence and his authority. And here Paul and Silas are the oppressed. They're on the bottom. They're in the prison. They're at the disposal of the magistrates and of the crowd. And notice the difference in temperament. The oppressed is praying and praising God and finding joy in life in prison. And then a moment comes and the once oppressor is suddenly at the end of himself. Now, Consider for a moment the implications here of what's going on, because this is so significant. Here this man immediately goes from being in charge, then he realizes what happens, and he's going to kill himself. Why would he do that is the next question that might ask. What he knows is that it makes big emphasis in this text to say the magistrates made him responsible for these prisoners. And so the conclusion would be if they've gotten away underneath his stewardship, under his responsibility, then he may have had something to do with releasing them. Thus, he would be punished for them escaping. So he knows death is what awaits me. And so he's ready in distress to kill himself. You know what is very sad today is how much there has been an increase in the last 15 to 20 years of teen suicide. It's been a lot. Likely your kid will not get through four years of high school without having somebody at their school commit suicide. When I was a teacher, I had multiple students over a nine and a half, 10 year career that committed suicide. Sat in my classroom every day, seemed perfectly normal every single day to learn they took their own life a lot of times whenever the information started coming out about why it's because there was an earthquake in their life that it happened there was a, some travesty or they were living in some environment perpetually that they felt like they could no longer endure and they came to the end of themselves and their solution when they considered all the problems in their life and all the pain in their life was to just put an end to all of it. But listen, there's one major flaw in that form of reasoning. You're not putting an end to your existence. Not even close. In the very beginning, God is very clear that he made us in his image, that we're eternal creatures and that that part within us will never die. You will exist a billion years from now and that will just be a small percentage. You can't even say it's a small percentage. That will not even be an infinitesimal number of the totality of your existence. And so this little Fifteen or twenty or fifty or a hundred year blip in our existence is merely a small dash in the long existence that we 're going to have forever, and these people who think when they come to the end of themselves and there's some earthquake in their life and they've lost hope. And that's where so much of this comes from is that people look in their life and one of the things that keeps people going is that we have hope that the future will be greater than the past or the present. And so we live on and we are hopeful about good things ahead. And Satan strives when people begin to go through pain to crush at all costs hope. That there is nothing ahead for you but suffering and pain. And listen, that might very well be true if you don't know the Lord. But listen, one of the greatest hope the Christian has is that no matter what we suffer here, the glory that will be revealed after this life far outweighs any suffering in this life. And the older I get, the more I live for heaven, not in avoidance of heaven, the more there is an eagerness in my spirit to lay down the weights that so easily beset me and go to the place God has prepared for me. And I know that that's a place that is perfect and beyond the wildest imaginations that you and I could ever have is that place that God has prepared for us this man got to a point of despair. And and it's scary to read this account because look at how close he was to entering hell forever. I mean, moments away. He likely had no idea what he was considering. And most people who live in a state of despair have no idea moments before they take their life the significance of what's about to transpire. He was about to have a fate sealed for eternity. A place where there is no escape. And he was moments away. But listen to me. God made provisions for this man. To stop this man. And that's one of the reasons that I love this story. God sent one of it, two of his men on this roundabout course that required them getting beaten in order to be at this man at his worst moment, right before he sealed his fate, that there might be an evidence, that there might be someone there a, to, to proclaim the gospel, to speak to this man. And, and so Paul, as this man is about to take his life, calls out to this man, do yourself no harm, stop, stop. Very often that's how I feel like the preaching of the gospel is. It's not only preaching for you to go somewhere, but it's to stop where you want to go. Stop, don't go there, don't do that. It only leads to pain and disappointment and despair, and ultimately, at its ultimate conclusion, eternal doom. Paul cries out. He says in verse 28, Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Perhaps this morning God has allowed an earthquake in your life to unfold Because he's wanting you to come to the end of yourself. Listen, everybody that gets saved have to come to the end of themselves. What does that even mean? That's just a a religious statement that has no meaning unless you give it some. What does it mean to come to the end of yourself? That means there is a sense to which you and your will and your life is left at the complete disposal of God. It's as though you're taking your life and you're putting it in your hands and all your aspirations and all of your hopes and all the bitterness that you might have towards other people and all the speculations about what might come in the future. You take all of that and you say, Lord, it is not mine. I surrender it to you. And you leave it there. And it's God's. This man does that. He's desperate. You know, I'm amazed. I have four children and I'm amazed at the difference in their spirit and in their will. And even in their short lives, how at different points of their life, their will has a different strength to it. So my oldest, whenever he was a newborn up to two years old, had a very strong will. And so for two years, we didn't sleep at night because for 45 minutes to an hour, every single night, he would cry. And no matter what we did, his will was so strong at that point, it just wouldn't break. Fast forward eight years, his will's nowhere close to that. He'll surrender much more easily, he's more compliant. I have another son, my second one, who is the complete opposite. He was the easiest baby that I've ever had. right? I was terrified to have a second child because I thought all children were like the first child. right? (laughs) And then the second one came along and I'd sit him in his crib and he would sleep. I'd wake up in the middle of the night terrified that something had happened to him because he was quiet and so I'd rush in there. And he was fine, he was just sleeping. Fast forward five or six years, His will has strengthened, (laughs) right? He suddenly has opinions of his own, desires of his own. You see, not only are children like that, we're like that. There are certain times of our life where we have a strong will, where we think we know right, where we think we know what we need and what we want, and we're self-dependent. There's other times where God has broken us, And suddenly those things that we were so strong about, those principles that we thought we would die for, that nobody could convince us differently, perhaps wisdom, perhaps life's ruggedness have softened us. And suddenly those things we would die for are no longer that important. And so when somebody wants something, we allow them to usurp our will. We allow ourselves to break and for their will to triumph over our own. God found this man and caused an event to occur in his life and placed people in his life at that moment that his will might be broken, that he might be in a place to willingly surrender self to God Almighty and say, you know what? It is all in your hands. And he rushes into Paul and Silas, having seen their display of faith, even under persecution. And he says, what do I do to be saved? How can I have what do you have? Oh, and I love this part of the story, and Acts does this frequently. There's multiple times where the book of Acts shows us this. Not only did he believe, but his whole household. I think the only greater blessing to being saved is to have everybody around you saved. Here this man, he rushes in, And he goes, I mean, think of the contrast. He's in a moment of such despair, he's about to kill himself and eternally seal his doom forever. And moments later, the Bible teaches us, he that is abased shall be exalted. And there he is, abased, Mm -hmm. obedient to the word, putting faith in Jesus Christ. And suddenly he goes from this abased place to more exalted than what you can get in this life. In short, he, he gets saved. And then notice how his disposition changes. Now, now notice this. His situation with the government didn't change. Right? Like th- that circumstance in some sense was the same. But now he takes Paul and Silas, and I love the way it reads here. He went and washed their stripes, and they came and washed his stripes. You see that? There they have these natural stripes. And so he comes, and he takes water, and he begins to wash their stripes. And what does he have but baggage and sin? He's stained with it. His identity is that. And then they baptize him. And make him a part of that congregation there in Philippi. Listen this morning. I think a big thing today in American culture and within the minds of a lot of people is. My hardship is some either form of punishment of God. Or it's God just neglecting me. But what if it's something else? What if what ails you is the greatest blessing God has ever given you? Because it will bring you to the end of yourself and the beginning of Jesus Christ. I would contend that the sufferings of this life are primarily, not entirely, but primarily unto that purpose. That God, you know, that's one of the reasons why it's as easy to say, it's hard to do, and I'm not saying I, I don't do it. Don't question God in your suffering, trust Him. Trust Him. He has a reason for it. This morning, if you're lost today, I want to invite you to seek the Lord. I want to invite you that if there is, listen, when we talk about being lost, and I think many of you know this, but I want to say it because I feel like it's important. When you're in a service and you hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit from within, listen, I get up here often and I'll preach. And there are sometimes when I preach, it does nothing to your heart. It does not stir your heart. It does not break your heart. It does not compel you to seek after the Lord. But there are times when the preaching of the gospel goes out and it begins to break your heart and your mind is focused on it and the fear inside of you is elevated and you're scared and you know that you need God. Listen to me, those are the moments to seek the Lord. Those are the moments where your spirit is being broken, where God is compelling you to come and seek me because it's his way of saying, I want to save you now. Come to me. When you sense that, and then all the devils in hell, all the sinfulness of your own mind, fight that. All the pride of your heart says, Don't go in front of these people and seek the Lord. But if God is calling, run to Him. Run to Him and say, I have tried everything. What must I do to be saved? It doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm at the end of myself. If I embarrass myself like a fool before these people in the whole world, it matters not to me. I want you above all else. This morning, if you're lost, I want to invite you to come and pray. I often say this because I feel like I need to. There's no virtue here, but it's a good come, place to come pray. Right? Right? More people in my life have been saved out of church than people in church. I know that. But when God is calling you, that is the moment to seek Him. And it should not be surprising that God calls people when the gospel is being proclaimed. It's His invitation to you. Come and seek me. And listen, these people here, they love you very much. And I'll say this, our church has a lot of concerns There's a lot of things that we want to see change in our church. There's a lot of things we want to see improved at the church. But listen to me today. Here's one thing that every person in this room that is saved agrees on. We want those 10 or 12 or 15 or however many lost people that enter these doors on a regular basis. We all unanimously want you saved above everything else. And everything is secondary to you finding God. And as that ticking time bomb gets closer to either your death or your exit from this building permanently by your own choice, it causes fear in us because we can feel that ticking time bomb ticking down closer and closer and closer. And yet I pray, knowing the God that I'm praying to is gracious and merciful, that if it requires an earthquake in your life, God, so be it because your eternal salvation is more more important than any, any temporary pain that God might inflict on you. And I wish no harm upon someone unless that will lead to their ultimate salvation. Then I do. And that's a hard prayer to pray, but I know who I'm praying to, that I can entrust that prayer to the God that I know. This morning, if you don't know the Lord, I want to give you an invitation to seek him today. Brother Danny, if you'll get for us a song. Let's all stand and sing this morning.